Industry Under Pressure. Innovation in its finest hour. This is the Oil & Gas Technology Podcast, where sharp minds reveal the brilliance and sheer determination turning great ideas into new realities. Hear about how it happens in real life with your host, Michael O'Sullivan. The views of the host are expressly his own and should not be construed as the views of any other corporation, consortium, governing body, or interplanetary federation. You know, it's funny. I know that this is a uh, this is a podcast about technology, and I've been hosting it for quite some time now. Um, and we do an episode every week, so I'm sure that there are some of you out there who probably think that I just know everything about technology. And and, and to those two people, I say thank you for your great confidence. But for the rest of you, I'm going to say that this probably comes as no surprise that uh, I I I learned about something here that. Um, I, I never even heard of this. I mean, this is completely, I had, I had not heard of this. Well, I, I've, I've heard of, um, and it has to do with 3D printing. And of course I've heard of 3D printing, but, um, um, and, and to be honest, this probably doesn't really have anything to do with oil and gas, although I guess there could be some oil and gas uh, implications, but this particular example does not. However, it was mentioned uh, by by the guest that I have on, on the show today that, that you're going to hear in just a minute. And uh, and he is infinitely more knowledgeable and interesting than uh, yours truly. However, I did want to, I was curious about this one thing that he mentions. And it is true that there is 3D printing for human tissue. I guess they call it bio printing or something, something along. Yeah, bio, three, 3D bioprinting of living tissues. Now I'm looking, um, I'm looking at uh, something called the Weiss Institute, uh, which oh I guess it's part of, it's a, it's a Harvard University, uh, something or other. I don't know, but uh, they they got a whole website dedicated to this. And there's um, so for those of you who are wondering or maybe haven't heard the latest on 3D living tissue printing, uh, it says here progress. In drug testing, oh, in case you were wondering why in the world we, would, we, would we want to do that, um, progress in drug testing and regenerative medicine could greatly benefit from a laboratory-engineered human tissues built of a variety of cell types with precise 3D architecture. But, there's always a but, but production of greater than one millimeter or greater than millimeter sized. I don't know if that's one millimeter or a million millimeters, but anyway, you can't get bigger than a certain size uh, of human tissue. Uh, It's been limited by a lack of methods for building tissues with embedded life sustaining vascular networks. Now, if there are any of you out there who have some good ideas on how you can, um, uh, how you can build tissues with embedded life-sustaining vascular networks, then the folks at Harvard University would like to hear from you. Now, before we move on to the main event, as they say, here on the Oil & Gas Tech Podcast, which is coming to you on the Oil & Gas Global Network, which is the largest and most listened to network of podcasts for the oil and energy industry. Before we get to the main thing, there is this thing I want to tell you about. Um, and, and because we all know that the oil and gas industry is going through all kinds of transformation 
right? Digital, financial, cultural, there's new priorities, new operating models, things are moving in all directions. And we also know, as we talk about here all the time, that it is having a huge impact on our workforce. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you call it shift change or war for talent or, yeah. Maybe you're just scrambling to retool your team. And that is why I want to tell you about our friends at a company called M-Link. And yes, we are talking about e-learning. And I know that there's plenty of online training out there where other people think that they know what your people need. But if you really want to move with the industry, then I'm telling you, what you need is a custom e-learning solution that aligns to your exact business goals. Now, M-Link has been at this for a long time. They started in 1990. They won more than 50 awards, and, and they've, they've worked with some big names, right? FedEx, Microsoft, Cisco, Pizza Hut, Mary Kay, a whole bunch of them. Now, what kind of e-learning solutions are we talking about here exactly? Well, I'm glad you asked, because M-Link delivers, uh, of course, there's the traditional instructor-led uh, type of stuff, but also there's character animation, gamification, performance simulation, and yes, of course, it can all be mobile. So if your team needs to grow and transform, which I know it does, then have a look at M-Link, where they are linking mind and media to improve human performance. And of course, you can learn more at mlinktech.com. And as I always say, we do love our sponsors at OGGM because without them, there is no us. And that is really true. So show our sponsors some love. Now, about today's exciting feature. And I got to tell you, folks, I, I am a little bit excited today because uh, there's a little celebrity factor here with today's guest. Um, he has, he's been on uh, TV more than just once in a while, radio programs. He speaks to a lot of people about a lot of different things. And, um, and, and he's just written a book. Uh, it's not his first book, but uh, this one is getting uh, fantastic reviews. In fact, uh, some of the people... Um, the reviewers of the book, you know, the ones that you see on the back cover with the comments, even some of them are a little bit famous. So, ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm OGG and welcome to Mark Mills. All right, and we are here, as promised, with... Mark Mills, uh, joining us all the way from uh, sunny, warm Washington, D.C. Mark, thanks for <laughs> making, making... We already did the weather comparison, and it's warmer. It's warmer in Houston. Thanks for having so, me yeah, on. But thanks. 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 I appreciate it. And, and um, I, you know, I always like to do a little kind of a, like a little a little intro, like who you are and what you do and things like that. But, but you have so many things that um, I'm going to... I'm going to just... It shows. This shows you I've never yeah. managed to figure out what yeah. the hell it is. What, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. yeah. No, uh, yeah. well, part, I'm still trying to grow part up. Of it, Ask my wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of it too is I always love it because this doesn't happen very much. Um, but when I get a guest who actually goes back farther than I do. So <laughs> <laughs> no, now you're making me feel <laughs> so, old. This is not well, good. Well, you know, your website says that you were a young staffer <laughs> in the Reagan White House. So there's in diapers. In, <laughs> You were a prodigy, like, just, a, like yeah, yeah. Well, you're a child prodigy. I was in diapers still, just so you don't date me too yeah. much. Well, it, if it if it helps at all, um, I was old enough to vote for him in the in the in the, in the <laughs> second. Well, I wasn't I wasn't mo much older than voting age, but but I was older than voting age. So, so um, yeah, it was quite so, an experience. Yeah, well, yeah. no, I, 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 a ton of people. You worked for Reagan. I decided when I talked to students, is like 
people when I was a student telling me they worked for a Calvin Coolidge, and uh, so I tend not to tell tell people anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> except for political junkies yeah. who who actually think who that's think cool. That, that is cool. Yeah, we could do a, that's a whole another podcast, but that would be interesting <laughs> to talk about. All right, so I'm going to try to sum this up. So I'm going to start with now. So now, now you kind of you kind of advertise yourself as a uh, uh, a tech pundit, author, speaker, forecaster. Um, you're a partner in uh, Montrose Lane, which down here in Houston, we, we know those guys uh, formerly as Cottonwood Ventures, a lot of software uh, um, in, investment here in recent years. Also, I know that you're, uh, you're, you're connected somehow with the Manhattan Institute, which is a think tank that I actually don't like I've heard of, but I don't know too much about. Um, you've written for Forbes uh, in in the past, and uh, I, I don't know what what else uh, what else can uh, can we say? Wall Street Journal, the USA Today. I mean, I've done dozens of TV shows in my peripatetic career, talking and arguing about energy from the Today Show to John Stewart's Daily Show back in the day, yeah. and I. Uh, I'm also a faculty fellow at Northwestern University's engineering school, which is kind of an honorific in the sense that I don't I'm not, I'm not on the faculty, but I get I get to hang out with them, which is kind of fun because they're brilliant people. Yeah, yeah so yeah. I, I, you know I, I write, I talk, I do research. I don't do anything useful anymore. <laughs> I used to do useful things, invent stuff, build yeah. things, get patents. Yeah, there was I thought you know? I saw a note back there and the, something about some patents. Do you, can can you what was it like? I'm curious. So back in the Speaking about history, back in the dawn of yes. time, when the dinosaurs roamed the right. earth, I uh, worked in semiconductors. My first job was in a semiconductor fab, designing processes uh, for large-scale integration. Ah. I went, got patents there, and then I went from there to um, fiber optics. I was on the team that put the first commercial fiber optic cable right. in, which would also date me. That was <laughs> not was, so uh, bad. That's not so bad. Late, <laughs> they're pretty new. I worked in lasers and missile guidance and uh, defense systems, uh, and then um, then from there into the nuclear industry in Canada, right, right. where I worked for the only uranium refiner in North America and spent some time in the mining industry, which was great education for me, quite, quite different kind of orthogonal from doing semiconductors, and uh, then ended up in the White House Science Office doing uh, defense Initiative, the Strategic Defense Initiative, nuclear nonproliferation. Uh, that sort of lead you, lead, led one naturally into the energy field if you're doing nuclear sure. stuff. Sure. I think, so. I think what you've just established is that uh, from whatever, whatever we talk about from this point forward, I'm not going to argue with you at all about, about anything. <laughs> well, I, tell, I tell my kids, I'm always yeah. right. And if I'm not, I'm not going to yeah. admit it. <laughs> no, why, and why should you? And why should you? So, all right. Uh, you did mention, you mentioned energy in there. And one thing that I, di I didn't mention, but you have, uh, you mentioned this earlier when we were chatting that you've done a lot of work in energy, or a lot of work in oil and gas originally before we started calling everything energy, um, and a lot of work in tech. So that's how we're going to, that's how we're taking the, although we could spend, we could, we could dive into all those topics, but, um, people change the channel if you go for too long. So, um, <laughs> so right. we're going to, we're going to map it into, uh, what's happening today with oil and gas and energy. And, and, and the, the interesting thing I think about, um, uh, about all those different facets, which are you, is that you do some amount of kind of forecasting and predicting, um, what's going to happen, which is kind of part of, uh, so you got a book, you, 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 there's a new book, right? Is this the, is this the first book, like the first full size book or, or, or just the most no. recent one? Uh, 
most recent. recent. Yeah, yeah, I do remember Shell Two O. That wasn't a book, though, right? That was that wasn't that was a report. But yeah. uh, back in two thousand and five, uh, my partner and I published a book called The Bottomless Well, but some people may remember, uh, and that was the peak year for the peak oil theory. Oh yeah, when we were being told. Right that we were going to run out of oil and the planet was going to be uh, sucking wind or something, something, <laughs> something like that. <clears throat> no energy. Yeah. And uh, we're running out of oil, the Hubbard's curve, yeah, all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. And um, our, our book was, and, and it's still available. It still sells apparently, uh, which is kind of interesting after this long a time period. But uh, in talking about oil specifically, we predicted what would happen correctly and it's nice to predict yeah. correctly for the right yeah. reason, uh, which in effect is the, the shale revolution. But what we pointed out at the time was that peak oil was nonsense, that from a fundamental geophysical resource perspective, Earth has more oil than the humans yeah. right. are likely to use in the coming centuries, not years. The access to oil is entirely determined by two features, technology and permissions. Governments give you permission right. to get to land where the thing you want right. to do has to be yep. done. And then you need technology that accesses the energy in a form that's affordable, yeah. right? And this is true, by the way, for all energy sources. You know, as a physicist, I like to remind people that energy is unlimited, which is why we call the book The Bottomless yeah. Well, and that what determines your ability to power society are always machines that use land mm-hmm. and that acquire yeah. access a resource to convert right. it into a form that's useful to people, which useful means at a cost we can afford at a time that we need yeah. it. So we, we it was pretty obvious at the time that we we're gonna not run out of oil and either in the long term or in the short yeah. term. <clears throat> now we have a different thesis, as you know, it's we're using too much right. oil <laughs> and gas and we should stop yes. using it. Which is kind of ironic because the same people yeah. who, who said we were, should should get something new because we're running out of it we are saying new this because, because we too much, too much of it. <laughs> yeah. And, all right. So um, so there was uh, and they're saying the same same the same new stuff is the same new stuff then. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it is it's interesting. Um, I remember somebody uh, back then during the peak oil discussion, which by the way, that was the peak oil discussion about running out of oil, about the about the peak of supply, which is sometimes confused yeah. with a different peak discussion about the peak of demand. But but I remember somebody somebody saying to me, it was a it was a geologist friend of mine, an exploration geologist, and he said he said I'm pretty sure that. We we're gonna find a way to destroy ourselves some completely other different way long before we ever we ever run out of the oil that that, that we need for the energy. So um, so I, I've never I, he, he was pretty confident that it was it was it was not running out. So even before I even even before you guys uh, even before you said that it is it but but you said something though you said it's nice to be right um, about for the right reason. So, and you said that, you said those same words when we were chatting earlier. So what's the, what's the right reason? <laughs> well, we were right about why we wouldn't run out of oil. Yeah. Be, because, for the right reason, which is that technology was changing fast enough 
to unlock access to oil we knew that existed. We didn't have to go yeah, find it. Yeah. You know, shale is source rock, as as geologists know, and source rock for the non-experts, they know what that. Yeah, you know, yeah. Everybody in your audience knows what that means. It means you are hoping over millions of years that the oil and gas in the source rock will dribble out under pressure and form pockets that you <laughs> that are pressurized, yeah. and you can drill yeah. into and they gush oil and gas. Out, right. Well, okay, so go to the source and. So we did, right? And and the techniques that everybody now knows, uh, hydraulic fracturing, yeah, yeah. Uh, allows that. The the inverse about peak oil demand, uh, I'd I, I take the bet. Um, I've offered to take a bet. You know, I, Julian Simon, if you know who mm-hmm. he was, is a friend of mine and a neighbor. He, he famously took the bet with Paul Ehrlich years ago about, uh, Ehrlich said the, we were going to run out of food and resources. This is back in the 90s. And he published his book uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, and Simon took a bet with him that he'd be wrong. So I, you know, I try to emulate the Simon bet when I'm having debates. As I recall, with we didn't run out of food during that time. We, we didn't, didn't run, run out, out of food, food. and people—we yeah, didn't have mass starvation. Yeah, yeah. To the extent people starve, it's because of malfeasance and evilness of governments, not because there isn't enough food in the world. But yeah. the, the, peak, the peak demand theory is what we have running now. Is that the—you know how the thesis goes—that we're we have slow growth going in the world going forward because that's the new normal. Growth is going to be slow, especially for the developed economies. Right. And um, all these new technologies are inherently better than the old stuff, oil and gas. Right. And so why not accelerate the transition, mm-hmm. the new yes. word, away from oil and gas to the new magic, the new magic technologies, which are cheaper, better, right. putatively right. cheaper and better. Yes. And, and demand for oil is going to peak. I take that bet. Demand for oil, it might peak one day, uh, but if I were, I would, in time frames that people are typically putting out there, that the demand will peak in the very near foreseeable future, yeah. few years, less than a decade. Hap, happily take the bet with uh, all comers. Uh, but there are a lot of very serious people who think that's the case. They think that Teslas or the, their competitors and um you know, wind and solar farms will, with batteries will cut gas use. So my my book, my new book, uh, takes on some of that. Bottle as well took on all of that. My new book takes on some of that energy mythology. But I, I focus on something a little different in this book. You know, the, the cloud revolution is not a book that's titled about energy. And really, it's about a technological transformation that's underway right now. Right. That is... Uh, Episodic, not unique. So unique doesn't mean never has happened before. It's a transformation in character that happens rarely in history, yeah. has happened before, where there's a confluence of technological revolutions in sort of the major domains of technology occurring simultaneously. And the confluence leads to uh, revolutions in economic behavior, productivity, what humans can do, generate or put more simply, generates wealth. Uh, increases wealth for more people more rapidly than in the recent past. If we have, if what I think is happening, and I, I'm not guessing, I'm sort of map out what's happening, mm-hmm. not what might happen. But if it keeps happening at the rate it could happen, we'll have much more economic growth than most economists forecast. Yeah. Now, yeah. economists, you know, I, I insult them because they have their models 
typically fail to predict the past, much less the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, my, yeah, microeconomics works fine. You make a good too expensive, right. people don't want to buy it. Well, yeah, duh. Yeah. But I'm talking macro, about the macroeconomists. Right, right, right. yeah. they, what they've always missed over history, and, and good economists acknowledge this, and a, really, a good economist is, a, is a really a, a, a magical thing. I, I, I cite several economists who I admire enormously in my book, like Joel Moycure at Northwestern, who is a Nobel class economist, and I cite Nobelist Phelps for their insights and others. But anticipating new technologies that really change the landscape, not tech, a technology, but new class of technologies mm-hmm. that change the operational landscape of civilization, forecasting when they're going to happen obviously is really difficult. Sure. And economists can't do that. So they, they could say, well, how, we predict what we know. Fair, fair enough. But what my book does is builds on the uh, Drucker, you know, Peter Drucker was, right. was, you know, a management consultant that was f- famously famous for being right so often about management things and how businesses operate. Yeah. He used to say he stopped forecasting in 1929 because he was alive and wrote a column right before the stock market crash and published the forecast about stocks. Yeah. That would take the wind yeah, out of your sails. Like, yeah, that would. Yeah, <laughs> that would. yeah. He said from then on, he only he only predicted what had already happened. Right. Sure. <laughs> but what? But he meant something serious yeah. about that. He it was yeah. a great line. What he meant was two things. First, demographic trends uh, are are so um, sticky, if you mm-hmm. like, that they're they're high inertia, that they've already happened. The future will have older people in it than the past. That's a demographic trend that has implications, right? right. right? You don't have to guess about that. We, absent an asteroid hitting the Earth, the future will have older people, and especially in America and in developed nations. So that has economic implications. But also, you look at inventions that have already occurred that have been commercialized that are underutilized because they're new, yeah. not because they've just been invented. So 1920, uh, you, you would probably guess that the automobile was going to start to take off because it was two years after the Model T, yeah. and it was the advent of a really inexpensive car. So you went from households having a few percent of households with cars to a third of them by the end of the 1920s. Right. That shouldn't have been very hard to predict, and it wasn't. Uh, once, once the car had reached that stage, which was 25 years after the invention of the right. car. Right. So I, in my book, I look at things that are essentially 20 years after their invention— that are just now becoming commercially viable across all domains, not just computing, the cloud, but also material science and machines. Yeah, we should mention the we should mention the title of the book before we. Yeah, I got I, I forgot to do yeah. that. So, so the title of the book is speaking of cloud, is the cloud revolution, and uh, there's a subtitle. Let's see if I get this right. Uh, how the convergence—it's <laughs> a long—it's a long subtitle. How the con- subtitles are always the pricey, right? For the exactly. Book, as you know. How the convergence of new technologies will unleash the next economic boom and a roaring 2020s. Um, so, uh, which is which kind of has the echo in there of, of what you just said, which is uh, so what you're saying the convergence of new technologies. You're not really talking about the ones that were just just invented. You're talking about the ones that have now that are are reaching mature or will reach maturity or not, uh, commercialization in the near in the near future. There, there are there are in commercialization phase now. now. Right. Yeah. So. The, the analog that helps is that you, you can one can write histories through the lens of a single invention, the car, the airplane, right. the light bulb, the refrigerator. Well, when you put and them these all are, together, it's, a, it's something different, right? right. Yeah. 
And it's, it's interesting to see history that way because there's an awful lot to making the refrigerator work. Sure. There was, you know, refrigeration's a big deal. It's been a big deal for a very long time. But if you think of the 1920s, uh, the three the three domains of revolutions, which are always the domains of revolutions, are machines that make stuff yeah. and move right. things, the materials we make everything from, and information we have about everything. That's it. Those are the domains. So in at that era, what we had was radio and telephone mm-hmm. and the professionalization of science mm-hmm. in nineteen twenties. Right. In the machine space, we had things like the car, the airplane, and the electric motor were taking off. They weren't just invented then. They were all becoming viable sure. then. In the material space, we had high-strength alloys finally were invented and viable. And pharmaceuticals, the chemical industry was reaching its maturity, which allowed polymers, which changed how you could make right. things, all kinds of things, and pharmaceuticals. Each of those things I just described were independent inventions they weren't invented by the same people or the same company, but they're all synergistic. And having them all reach maturity roughly at the same time was incendiary. Yeah. Any one of them alone was, was significant. And what happened in 1920 to the year 2000, in economic terms, is that per capita wealth of Americans, in inflation-adjusted terms, went up 700%. Mm-hmm. Average lifespan went up 30 years, is sort of two metrics. Right. And entirely because of the unleashing of those technologies. Obviously, we had human beings don't change their behavior, yeah. right? They were always yeah. doing stupid stuff. So we had two horrible wars in the 20th century. We had a Great Depression. Yeah. None of those were caused by technology or engineers. Right? The, the Depression was not caused by growth. It was not caused by technology. It wasn't caused by robots. It was caused by bad behaviors and policies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, the, it, so my... I, in my book, I, I don't, uh, you know, I begin with observing that we can do that again. Uh, you can destroy economies. New technologies can make growth possible. And you can Sovietize an economy. We know because the Soviets right, did right, that right, to theirs. Right. So, all right. They didn't get the growth we got. <laughs> That's right. Okay. So, so many good things there. Um, usually what I do with people is I, I, let them, I let them run for a little while. Then I say, okay, I want to go back to something. Then you say, say, stop it. And I stop. Say, oh, I want to go back to something that you said. Um, okay. and, but I'm there's ready. like seven things that I want to go back to, all the way back to your comments on peak demand. But I, I think- it, We got we, time. We got seven hours. Isn't that how long the Seven, eight. Right in, right in there, whatever it takes. Um, oh, okay. So, uh, but um, this, if we were going to- um, so if, if we, I'll, I'll cut to the chase on, on one little part, and then maybe we can dig into some of the other things. But but uh, because I'm curious, because you laid out this thing, you said you could go back and you could look at all these individual inventions, and you could see that they were happening at the time, and they all came together, and they were incendiary. And um, so if if those of us who are have the the you know who are fortunate enough to be listening to this right now say, all right, what should we be on the lookout for here? in the near uh, run, if we want to be able to say, ah, Mark was right about that. I heard Mark say that he was right about that. Like, what are the, what are the things? Um, and, and I'm, I'm guessing cloud has something to do with it or I, I don't yeah, know if, it, so cloud revolution, I don't yeah. know if you mean like cloud computing or you just mean sort of a cloud of activity, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but what do we, what well, should we, what do we want to be looking for to be able to say, I remember I heard Mark say that. So let's, de- let's define the iconic, features of the uh, in those three spheres yeah, yeah. in right, our time, right. right? So in the 2020s. So if we look at the um, machine space, 
we we know right that's already obvious to everybody there's there are drones autonomous right. autonomous flying vehicles and autonomous driving vehicles yes. and i but i don't mean tesla's auto drive i mean the fact that in mines and industries all over the country right. and all over the world we are, we already are using autonomous vehicles in those environments, and that's only very recent. They're maturing. And just to just to put a little point on that, because sometimes people forget, by autonomous you don't necessarily mean uh, just something that's being remote controlled by somebody watching on a TV screen. You mean, I mean, fully it's, autonomous. It's doing its own thing based on the instructions that it has. And, right, yeah, exactly. Right. Not remotely controlled. Right. Not not so drones that are remotely controlled, which is what the drones are, right. the predator drone and the reapers. Let, we can uh, deliver not, drones too. It doesn't have to just be the the <laughs> right. right. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with a, a semi autonomy right. because the remote control features are extremely important. That's what the uh, robotic surgery, the Da Vinci robot. It's not really a right. robot. It's it's in the in the engineering community. The word for that is cobot. Mm. It's a collaborative robot. It's you work with it. It enhances your capabilities right. and works with you. Right. That's. And that's really where, where the revolution is. Like Iron but, Man, so, basically, you put the thing on and it works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I got you. right. You, or, or you have a manipulator, right. or you, you just talk yeah. to it. You don't. It doesn't do something without you taking it, an action with the, the machine. Right. So full autonomy is a washing machine is fully autonomous, right? You turn <laughs> on, you true. walk away. And they work hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they work. It's a, it, it is an autonomous machine. In, in in the elastic word robot, which is very a very elastic word, it is it is a robot. It's a robotic washing machine. It can't fold laundry, but mm. you know that that's it turns out that's a lot harder to make a machine fold right, fold right. laundry. Not impossible, just yeah. hard and expensive. So we have we have autonomous vehicles and drones. Yep. Drones flying drones by themselves are very recent and and. And, and, and quite a big deal, including in the energy industry, used for inspection yeah. and uh, uh, monitoring, and as everyone knows. And 10 years ago, there were no drones used in the oil and gas industry or the industrial community. Now they're, now they're everywhere. Right. Uh, we have 3D printers, which have been hyped for oh, the last 20 years since they were first essentially invented, but now, now maturing, now becoming viable tools and across a lot of industries. And... You know, going through the typical hype cycle from overexcitement to mm-hmm, making mm-hmm. them useful. Uh, what one has also in this in this space, and by, by the way, three D printers, the, the application domain is rather remarkable. It's not just making metal parts for aircraft or uh, implants for human beings, but three D printing of tissue into scaffolds uh, that are biocompatible to grow organ tissue for assisting. A repair of your organs, including growing entire organs for transplants that will be biocompatible with you. This is no longer in the realm of science fiction. It's actually in the realm of commercialization. Wow. Obviously, FDA approval required and all Obviously. that stuff. So the machine space also includes manufacturing machines that we use to make something that is everybody has in their pockets and purses, which is the microprocessors and all the components that go into that. Are, have a machine machinery, a constellation of machines that literally fabricate at the atomic level. Human beings have never had machines that can can assemble something at the molecular and atomic level, which is what we are doing today, daily. Mm. So it's no longer a question: Can you do? It? Does that have implications for other spaces other than microprocessors? You bet it does. It's how we're. It's how one manufactures 
other things like the sensors that we hope we'll use to to make autonomous vehicles. So the machines are really different. Can we, can we just atomically are, assemble oil so we don't have to go to all that trouble of getting it out of the ground? I mean, that would that would really simplify things. Yeah, well, in the phys, in the physics of the universe we live in, that's <laughs> nature did a much better job creating hydrocarbon molecules, yeah, yeah. tricking them into doing useful things is where the machines sure. come in. Yeah. And then the materials domain, not to, to, to spend too much time on that one, is uh, the the advent of uh, so-called uh, computational materials, where we, where we have this new phrase called the materials genome, a phrase that was invented only a few years ago, where one can have computing with laws of nature, if you like, uh, built into the supercomputer's algorithm to begin to think about how to engineer and design new classes of alloys or materials or biologics, therapeutics, mm -hmm. in, in silico instead of in situ, making materials whole cloth, like alchemy, that don't exist in nature, including materials that exhibit properties that don't exist in nature, like invisibility. And that, I don't yeah, mean that yeah. in the, I mean that in the literal sense. Optical invisibility is feasible through metamaterials. Radio invisibility is already, right. uh, sure. acoustic invisibility are done. These, these are remarkable transformations of materials. We have, we, one has and one can make materials that are uh, biomimicking, that they do what humans and animals do, heal themselves, clean themselves, assemble yeah. themselves. Assembling materials are it's a whole batch of chemistry, sort of, uh, that's no longer, again, science fiction. It's on the uh, early stages of commercialization. And finally, in the information domain, mm -hmm. uh, we have the cloud. And the cloud, what's interesting about the cloud is that in previous uh, incarnations of the advent of information systems, information systems are just that. They transport information from A mm -hmm. to B, a phone mm -hmm. call, a telegraph. Mm -hmm. The cloud is as different from the internet as the internet was different from telephony. Yeah, uh, The cloud is different in two ways. The cloud as a computing platform infrastructure is connect does connects almost all humanity so we're, we're at about three to four billion we're getting to almost all humanity is on a network but also lots of machines not just yeah. the, the machines yeah. around us but the machines in in the infrastructures of the world are not just our cars but parts of machines and importantly what's going on in the data centers inside the cloud is not not uh, mediating the exchange information, not computing, but in inference and advice. By that I mean when you when you use a Google Map or Apple Mapping program, obviously what you're getting is advice, right. but it's advice based on taking a lot of information about where you want to go, where you are, traffic, weather, all kinds of mm -hmm. things, right? Mm -hmm. And then giving you advice about where you might choose to go with a lot of options. These these are. Advice and inferences are very different than calculations. And so computing literally means to compute. I haven't asked it to compute. So the language here is important. This is relevant in terms of education because uh, education software is not is advice-driven. It's driven not just by artificial intelligence and machine learning, but by the kinds of software and algorithms that looks at behaviors, outcomes, and doesn't say... This is the answer, but rather, here's what I think you meant, or this is what I think you asked. You know, simplistically, Alexa and Siri are obviously advice givers, right? right? They don't just compute, but that's not just for gaming or for play me, you know, music on Spotify because I can ask it a question. It's used in medical professions. We use it in industry. Yeah. Increasingly, what we want to have is computing that can amplify our instincts or give us 
advice. The cloud allows that to be done not just ubiquitously, increasingly in every industrial, commercial, and service domain, but the refresh rate, if you like, the rate at which the machine that does that, the computing in the cloud, gets better faster than Moore's Law rate. Because the computer mm-hmm. that you used to buy every right. year, right? You waited a few years to buy a new computer. It was more powerful because of Moore's law, right? More transistors going faster. What happened? But you have you wait a few years. If you're the operator of a cloud, yeah. you you're you're replacing your equipment constantly because you're running essentially a utility function right. that you upgrade and add to capacity to get customers at a rate far faster than you as a consumer want and can do, because or afford to spend, the refresh rate in the, in the cloud, but that is the rate at which our capacity to access inference and knowledge disintermediation is growing at about 10 times faster than the Moore's law rate for computing. Right. right. This is, this That's is huge. unprecedented yeah. in history. So the three, think of those, and, and there's a lot, there, there are more examples I could, yeah, what I do in my book, obviously. But if you think of that kind of constellation of very different things being done by very different industries and people and inventors, all of them being accelerated because the cloud as a tool allows everybody in all those domains not only to do discovery faster, to deploy their product, whether it's physical or virtual faster, but to do their own discovery or to do their own management, operate their own business more cost-effectively. So it's, it's kind of like a... Um, uh, I, I, it's a unique product in that it's a universal amplifier across all domains, whether it's basic research or yeah. provision of a simple service. We haven't had that kind of universal amplifier, arguably, any time in history. This is Libraries are very important, but libraries are a way to store information. The cloud doesn't just store information. It can, as you know, it can search for you and say, Did you, is this what you wanted to look for? And do some inference. And if you like this, you might yeah, like that. Yeah. We, we do that in commerce. Okay, that's great for advertising and selling stuff. But when it comes to business, that's extremely powerful. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's things like this that actually that make me think that the matrix is real. Um, but, <laughs> well, there's, there's some, <laughs> but all science fiction is anchored in all some. All of it is all the way back to, uh, to Mr. H.G. Wells. Um, so uh, it, it, it's interesting, this amplification thing, because I think we it's been happening all around us, even if we don't realize it. Use your maps example. Um, you think about, I mean, it wasn't really that long ago, I, I think anyway, um, that... We would, you know, okay, when we first started getting our maps from MapQuest or whatever it was on the internet before Google Maps, I mean, that was, what was that, 20 years ago, I guess. And, um, but you remember what you had to do, right? Is you, you said, I want to go from here to yeah. here. And it said, okay, this is how you get there. And, um, and then you printed it out and took it in the car with you, right? Because there was no other way yeah. to bring it with you in the right. car. And right. so, um, and then if you were me, what would happen is you'd get halfway to where you were going and you realize that you forgot, you, like you left page three behind and you only have the first two pages. <laughs> and so- You pull out the Rand McNally yeah, app and the key, the key map. And so, um, so uh, but, and now what you said is, you know, you, you, you tell Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever, what, uh, this is where I want to go. And it's giving you all this advice and it's, and it's doing it. And even as you're traveling, this, is, this part actually has- kind of, as it developed, it kind of blew my mind. And not just because of, it, it's such a better way to get someplace, but because of the implications, like you said. It's it's using my data 
and data about all the things around me, the people around me and the conditions right. around me and everything that's happening. Right. Also, not only right around me, but between me and wherever I'm going. And I'm waiting for them to get the weather data in- integrated. I'm surprised that hasn't happened yet. But And then it's instantaneously making those right. recommendations and doing right. those in things for you. And right. um, yeah, and so if you, if you just think about where all the endpoints are for all of that activity that's happening with data and, 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 you know, I I get your point about it's not, you're not asking it to compute something, but at at a, at a certain level, there are computations happening. Right. And, and, um, that is like to go from, uh, you know, I have an electronic map. I print it out and I take it in my car or the, the very early GPS systems to what we have now, um, is, is, I mean, it's, it's completely different. It's a completely different, like you're on another level now. Right. Well, it's not only another level. So if you take what you're describing and everybody has experience with that because we all, so many people use mapping software. Which, by the way, it's doing the same thing for everybody else who's around you all at the same time. Like we're all doing it together, right? Yeah. It's it's a pretty amazing thing. So it has a lot of applications beyond driving somewhere, as as you well know, in terms of the routing of, or routing, depending on what part of the country you're from. <laughs> Is it Route 80 or Route 80? I've never have been able to... Uh, routing, route, route, the, the uh, increasing the uh, efficacy, lowering costs and of the supply chains and movement of goods sure. and mapping when I take something you know from the warehouse to you first versus somebody else. All those things are profoundly productivity enhancing and efficiency gaining. And we're accelerating because the precision is increasing while the cost goes down. But take take that uh, architecture, which is made possible, again, by a ubiquitous high-speed wireless networks that we just take for granted. uh, Data that's hyper-precise about you, where you are, where things are, are around you, traffic that's anonymously mapped and shared with everybody. And imagine extending that to the manufacturing sector more broadly, because it's harder to do that in manufacturing, but we're beginning to do mm-hmm. that in terms of uh, the parts and the components that go into something. Uh, very little of what goes on in the industrial sector is as precisely and seamlessly mapped as the movement of you and your car and other people in their cars. There's a reason for that. The sensors were too expensive. The reliability was too low. Consequences are too yeah, high when sure, you're making something. Sure. But as as we improve the uh, reliability of the networks, which is the technology mm-hmm. uh, trend, as we reduce the cost of the sensors, which is a materials trend, by the way, sensors get smaller, cheaper, lower power, so I can embed them in or onto almost anything. Sure. So that's a, that comes out of the material sciences, by the way, not the computing sciences. That's happening. We know that's happening. Yeah. We, yeah. We, we can think in terms of... Um, the the uh, idea of what that means for healthcare. Well, you want an endpoint. Uh, I take a, I swallow a biocompatible uh, uh, computer inside of a vitamin pill, because making a, vi- a biocompatible sensor smaller than a vitamin pill is not only theoretically possible; it's yeah, being yeah. done now. And yeah. biocompatible computing materials already exist and are FDA approved. So this bioelectronics space. Uh, we, one can imagine having real-time data about my key body functions on a secure network in my secure phone, blockchain protected, if you right. like, that yeah. does for me, for me personally, what in terms of 
what's going on in real time based on what I eat and how I feel. Doing that, that kind of information granularity in real time has profound implications. And, and it's, no, it's not a, could I do that in theory? One can do that now, but probably at a higher cost and then, uh, than anybody would tolerate, but that will come down in price. And so when you go to your doctor, the first thing your doctor says to you is, because you don't feel well, how did you feel two days ago? I don't remember. What did you eat if you did? How was your, you don't know what your blood sugar was, your EKG right, right. was three days ago. All that kind of information we know can be collected easily now. We know it'll be collected easily in real time, not just with We'll call it Sun of Fitbit or Apple Watch. Right, right. Uh, biocompatible uh, sensors that you wear, like Band-Aids, yeah. EKGs that you, you can choose to wear or not wear. These, but that that's going to be a little harder because it's the body is much more complex. What will come first is that kind of thing in buildings and machines. And, and we see it. We and see it in all the guys now. I mean, we see it with with drilling. Sure. We see it with soft, soft yeah. sensors yeah. on 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 yeah. on uh, in midstream and and being able to. I mean, yeah. And, and I, your point about I, uh, so I like the point about the kind of thing that we did with maps and getting people around. You know, that was able to come first because it's, well, it's, it's easier. easier there's not as much. There's not. <laughs> there's not huge amounts of capital at risk, right? There's not. Um, I mean, assuming you're not going to drive somebody off a cliff or into an ocean or something like that. Well, it, that's why autonomous cars are hard yeah. because if it's a robot car, there's a lot at risk if the robot gets yeah, it wrong. Sure, but um, so so it's easy to do it uh, in something that's fairly fairly low risk and low cost. Um, you know, of course, it was helped by the fact that for for a whole other reasons, everybody began to carry a supercomputer in their pocket, right? That had that had well, uh, yeah. uh, the connectivity to a network. But that's the that. convergence. Yeah. That's that's my convergence. Exactly. It's also easier to do if it's if it's advice. So yeah. that's why a lot of what I write about is that the revolution in cobots that are virtual and, and real is that humans are still in charge of almost everything. But I'm giving you advice. The mapping is advice about where to go in real time, it's not driving your car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is true in oil and gas. A lot of the oil and gas analytics are advice to the operator, right? As opposed to letting the machine run the drill. But right? as much, but the advice you can already see this where this uh, effect. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm thinking about okay, if we take what we saw happen with getting people around in their cars and, and the convergence of all the things that made that possible. Um, not just the, not just the, the phones themselves, but the network data speeds and everything. Um, and, uh, and you say, okay, well that sort of same effect is now going to start showing up in these other areas. Like you mentioned where, you know, in industry where, uh, it's more expensive, it's higher risk, but as we get better at it, we are comfortable doing that. We, that, yeah, you can see where that would all of a sudden become a huge, uh, uh, I don't even know what the right word is, but it's it's because like a game changer is not the right word and all that, but it 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 creates a whole new landscape. We do see that happening, like now even with drilling analytics and automation. What you're able to what what some companies are able to do um, now with uh, and I don't want to start mentioning companies because then somebody will get mad at me because I didn't mention the other one. But um, but. <laughs> but sure. they, 
<laughs> but, but what they're able to do, and we have sponsors, so, you know, uh, but um, the level of inference that you have now is much different even than just a few years ago sure. when, yeah. you know, it, when you were just trying to help somebody, you'll go back to shale, you're trying to help somebody steer a well in a fairly narrow band, right? That's, uh, that's one right. problem or one bit of advice to give somebody. But the kind of stuff that we're doing now um, that says, well, so far what you've drilled uh, the ground truth has produced uh, this data, and it's a little bit different from what the model said. Um, and we're going to, on the fly, recalculate what you should be doing next. Sure, that's that's exactly. that's something different. That's exactly. right? Yeah, yeah it, it, and it's it's harder to do because it requires uh, a different class of sensors that are better, cheaper, and still more right. accurate. Which is the materials revolution. It's hard to do because the Compute power you need is ex extraordinarily yeah. high, uh, and, but compute power gets better very fast, especially when it's in the cloud. Especially, so that's what that's, that's what's going on there, and this is true across every industrial domain. And what happens is, in hindsight, when we're at some point within the decade, where a lot of things are a lot more automated, both virtually automated and physically automated, it will look like an overnight revolution. You know, the, the, the proverbial uh, inflection point, and everybody will say, oh, it was obvious. And the, the point of my book is I think the inflection points for many of these things are visible now. We, we see them like you, the point you just made. And if, if we go back to where we know, the, the first industry to significantly automate with robots and control systems with the automotive mm -hmm. industry, manufacturing and automobiles. Because <clears throat> first it's easier, for, it's contained, closed in space, you're making an identical product more or less over and over again. So that it's, it makes it amenable to that. And when the very first, in a certain, some irony, I put this in my book, I, I, didn't, I discovered this by accident doing research. Really the, the first automated, um, robot for a factory was in a car factory, a GM factory in New Jersey in 1962. And it was a Unimate one-armed robot, which uh, amazed people so much. It was on Johnny Carson. With oh, its yeah, inventor. yeah, that's right. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can find the YouTube video uh, still of Johnny that, Carson yeah. being amazed at the robot, you know, hitting a golf ball with a golf club. Yeah. And within a few years after that, GM, having experimented with that robot, and you don't mess with robots in a big, expensive factory lightly because right. stakes right, are high, right, right. right? They installed Unimates in their Lordstown factory in Ohio in 1967, and that doubled its productivity. It was the most productive factory in the world. They did it for welding. And that was the beginning of the takeoff of automation in manufacturing automobiles in the 60s, which caused, by the way, uh, people to write and worry about robots taking jobs yeah, yeah, away yeah, from yeah. people. Yeah. And there would be no employment in the future. Right. We'd all be sitting in trailers playing. Then it wouldn't have been video games. It would have, would have been, uh, you know, other kinds of games. There might, there might be no employment the, in the future, but it's going to be for a completely different mm -hmm. reason from what I can tell right it now. It will yeah. be because of political <laughs> stupidity, not because of robots. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it'll be, bro. but we're, but we're at that point with ro with a different class of robots and automation today. We see them already again in controlled environments. Yeah. So one of the biggest problems in a construction site or an oil and gas, so which is like a construction yeah, site. or manufacturing, is, right? Yeah, same. Yeah. Element, but in outdoor environments, you're an unconstrained environment oh, yeah. with a lot more variables. Right, you're sure, in a constrained, sure. controlled yeah. environment. So robots that can help you there are harder to build. Mm -hmm. So the. The, the bridge to that world are, are the robots we're seeing now show up in warehouses. Warehouses have uh, more complicated degrees of freedom than, than the manufacturing environment. They're not as complicated as being at a 
oil site, but they're starting to get close to mm. that. And if we look at the largest growth in automation and robotics, literally robot, robotics, pick and place, grabbing things, moving things, it's in warehouses right now. And it's in warehouses right now because first the technology has gotten good enough in every respect, the materials, the power systems, the control systems, the safety systems, they're finally good enough. And there aren't enough people to be hired. There just aren't for those yeah, jobs. Yeah. And what I predict in my book, and I'll predict <laughs> live yeah, yeah, yeah. with you, is that the same technologies are on the cusp of invading the outdoor space, uh, beginning right. to, for exactly the same reasons, the same kind of trajectory we saw with mapping getting very just intuitive and simple. For the same reason, by the way, that we I don't expect, and I and I... I make the prediction in my book, and I'm happy to take the bet. We're not going to see self-driving, robot-driven cars for quite a while yet. They're the, they're very yeah. hard. But advice giving and preventing you from driving into children and, and objects, you know, self-stopping cars, far safer vehicles, far easier to drive, which is a form of automation and robotics, is also coming to the oil fields where we'll find uh, exoskeletons and inspection robots, whether it's spot mini walking around, watching things, or exoskeletons help you lift things right. so it's one person instead of two lifting something heavy. All those things we know, are, are used by Drucker line again, have already been invented. Yeah, yeah. And do we, do we think they'll get cheaper, better, pretty fast? Yeah, that's why I say the 2020s will roar, because to your point, you don't, you don't need to make things 10 times better in an industrial environment. If I make them yeah. 10 to 20% better, all that, by that I mean more productive, all that flows to the bottom line. It's, it's all made, it's, it's all huge. profit. Right, right. Huge. So we have we have a we have a budding revolution and you are searching for the word and the word is that I chose and I give credit to the economist Joel Moikier. He stole the word word from physics. When you have these convergences go on, you get what he calls an economic phase change. Ah, that's the word I was looking for, phase change. I'm, so, I'm glad to know change. that it took people much smarter than me to, to find the right words. So, yeah. yeah. I give Mike your yeah. credit for that. But he said, water is water, right? But when there's a phase change, steam and ice are very different than liquid yep, water. Yep. But it's still H2O. Yeah. When you have an economy that undergoes a phase change, which these technologies are bringing about, that convergence, and of course, phase changes happen because of a convergence of external variables, right? right, right? That's sure. what a phase yep, change yep. is. Interesting. So, wow. Okay, we we're gonna, we may have to have a part two episode just to like break into some of these a little bit more. But um, I'm getting, oh, oh, we're doing seven we're doing, parts. That's what you told me. Seven parts. It's a mini series. It's a mini series. It's bait and switch. Come on. It's okay. So, um, it, it, it is. Um, all right. So we'll get because. All right. I'm looking at time. We got we got a few minutes here. Um, I do want to bring it into maybe to give uh, to give this audience. What does it mean for oil and yeah, gas? Get, Come on, you got yeah. oil and well, gas. Well, you, you, we've hit on that a little bit. We've hit on that a little bit, but <laughs> but we've hit on it in a very sort of like broad like context. So maybe if we want to give people a few nuggets uh, to kind of take away and say uh, that as we look at oil and gas and. and 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 this is helpful, I think, for people who are um, may, maybe I'm in a leadership role and I'm trying to understand where my priorities should be, or maybe I'm in a, a contributor role where I'm. One thing that's happening in the industry right now, as I'm sure you're aware, is um, uh, people are trying to adjust their career trajectories to align right. to the sure. technology and <clears throat> operational the trajectory yeah. and things like that. Yeah. So what? Um, you know, so that's about the best. That's as well as I can frame that question. <laughs> what, 
What do we want to? Well, I mean, what do we want to kind of give you, people to, to take away to, some nuggets to to take home? I, and I see this all the time. You know, I, I do a lot of work, in, as you know, in the oil and gas business right. as well. I talk to boards and companies, speechify at, at conferences and yeah, stuff, yeah. and make, make my predictions publicly so that I, I can be held to account. Right. Uh, so, if you're in this business, if you're in the oil and gas business, you have to be you you have to be asking yourself whether you're planning a career in it or you're in the middle of it, whether you're mm-hmm, sure. an employee of a company and you say, do, do I want to stay in this business? Or you're running the business thinking, man, you know, I'm just going to ride out to my retirement because are you in the buggy whip business? Is it, 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 in effect, what we're being told, as you know, is that electric vehicles being the icon of the transition. And electric vehicles are a big deal. Yeah. Let me just stipulate. And there'll be lots more of them in the right. future than there are in the present. That's... Uh, a no-duh prediction yeah, is a technical yeah, term. Te- yeah. It's easy to predict yeah. that. The reasons why there's going to be more of them, that's a whole other discussion. But Well, I think there'll be, without government interference, there'll be more yeah. anyway, because they, they, they occupy a very important niche and function, functional value in mobility. Mobility is a very broad, complex yeah, space yeah. of moving people and goods. Right. So the batteries make a big difference, but they expand mobility much more than they replace the use of oil for mobility. Mm. It's a far greater net demand for energy to do the new things in mobility, drones that are battery powered, robots that are battery powered, uh, automated, you know, the Kiva robot that Amazon has, it looks like a turtle. It's not a walking bot, but they're battery powered, right? The expanded use of uh, batteries for mobility solutions will consume more net energy Mm. than the amount of oil displaced for the share of cars that are battery versus internal combustion. Yeah, but yeah. The, the question you'd have in your head is that the icon is, are, I, I'm living at a time when the car is coming along, replacing the horse, and we're being told that the electrification of the economy, especially Tesla's, is the equivalent of going from the horse to the car. This is a silly analogy that's being put, tra- trotted out by a lot of otherwise bright people. Uh, changing how a car is fueled is like changing the food that a horse eats. It's still a horse <laughs> if you change its food. Yeah. It's still a yeah. car if you change its fuel. The economic revolution that the invention of the car brought about is it, it immune to whether it was a battery-powered internal combustion engine burned hydrogen or gasoline. You, you, you use the mobility driver, the power driver, based on features that are dominated by economics and, and utility functions like convenience. And there's lots of different utility functions. But anyway, back to two, two takeaways for me. And as I thought about, I was writing this book, fall in two categories for oil and gas industry. One is the macro. I mean, do we need more oil in the future in general? And the answer is yes, if we have lots of growth, because as the world grows wealthier, the net demand for energy is far greater than any one source can supply. And to put it sort of in simplistic terms, we better we better hope there's lots more electric cars, windmills, and batteries and solar arrays, because the net demand for energy associated with billions of people getting cars, air conditioners, lights, and homes, and living even a fraction as comfortably as the couple of billion in the West do, the net demand for energy will overwhelm our ability, frankly, to usefully supply it at prices people will care about. So we need, you know, the old all the above that was coined by a former famous president. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> it, it, it actually, 
is right about that. We you, you need them all, and every energy every energy source over all of history has been additive. The world uses more wood today than it yeah. did a hundred yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah. And, and in fact, globally speaking, right now, twice as much wood is burned for energy as wind and solar provide combined. Still to this yeah. day. Yeah. So and and by the way, it, it counts as 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 green too. Well, yeah. of course it does because, because well, of, because yeah, it, because it started. Which, by the way, all by the, the way, our, our friend Mark Lacour, who uh, who founded the Oil and Gas Global Network, maintains that uh, that hydrocarbons should also qualify as green on the same premise that they they that they, they once <laughs> existed good. as yeah exactly. So, um, <laughs> if you believe that theory of hydrocarbon origins, yeah. but I don't, and I don't, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a whole other debate. But well, well since, since it's it rains natural gas on. Uh, on the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. The last I checked, dinosaurs didn't get space travel and they, go there. No, and melt they down. didn't. They did not that we know. Of. But um, but so before you go on to they the better. second thing, I want to uh, while we're parked on the first thing, um, it would that would so your your point about it's it's they're all additive. We need all of the the players on the field, so to speak. Um, that would that would assume. I mean, or that would that would then suggest that what we really need to spend time on is not. Um, uh, is is not being so concerned about whether new forms of energy are replacing oil and gas, should be replacing oil and gas, or fighting about all that. What we really should be spending those uh, mental and physical resources on is solving the other problem that hasn't completely been solved yet, which is how to scale and operate some of those other sources in right. the real world, right? right? And how to get some of these things out right. of the out of the lab, so to speak. Because, and I think that's something that people. One reason, and at some point in this earlier thing, you made a comment about certain people who think certain things, <laughs> and 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 I and I think it's partially people don't they don't fully appreciate the difference between I have a wind farm um, or I have a, a solar panel array and it provides X amount of power and X amount of time. To go from that to I can now scale, deploy, and operate this right at scale in complex environments and get the right. power to yeah. all of the things that actually need it. Like that's a whole nother. Um, I, I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm a, a, a underestimating over whichever thing I'm doing. But but isn't that something that uh, uh, we haven't quite like most of the world hasn't quite got their head around that yet? It doesn't seem like like the well, diff the difficulty involved. <clears throat> getting their head around it in Europe uh, right now, as we speak, and they did earlier a couple of months ago, when you get a wind lull, and wind lulls are yeah. week-long week -long wind lulls over large geographic areas are predictable in that they will always happen. <laughs> right. They're unpredictable when, as to right, when they right, will happen. Yeah. But a week-long wind lull or a week-long of cloud cover, if you happen to be, depending on solar sure. array, which also is predictable that it will happen, but unpredictable to when it exactly happens. Those do things to energy systems that are obvious. Since you're no longer producing significant energy, you got to get it from somewhere else. The somewhere else is the hope that you have hydrocarbons around. Right. As you know, England and Germany and others fired up uh, old coal plants. In Sweden, they fired up I think I have a 900 megawatt, almost a one gigawatt oil-fired power plant. New England, right now, as we speak, is running, uh, burning, burning, making more electricity with oil than they are <laughs> with natural yeah, gas. Yeah. Uh, so you, you want to keep the lights on, so to speak, so you do what you have to do. Uh, the idea that we can do that with batteries is, um, 
uh, you know, I, I hesitate to f- find the words that, to, to describe it without being insulting to those who proffer that as a solution. It's so intellectually uh, vapid, I might be the way <laughs> okay. I put it. Well, <laughs> the, the capacity to make enough batteries to store that much we'll energy that. doesn't exist. We're talking about no. thousands of years worth of production from all the world's gigafactories to produce batteries yeah. to store hours worth of energy when we right. need to store days. And then worth. what happens when we have to dispose so, of all those batteries? That's the whole thing. Well, I, I mean, he set that aside. Assume you can do all that nicely. You just can't make you enough of them soon enough in right, any way. Exactly. Yeah. It's just not, I, I've written a lot about that. I read some of that's in my book as well, but your point about scaling is important. I, uh, uh, one of the things I've done in the book is trying to map out two things about technology. One is those things that you can predict that won't happen because the physics doesn't permit it. Mm. So, and those things that don't happen easily because scaling is mm-hmm. hard. Right. And it, they're related phenomena, but they're different in this way. Uh, you could make more batteries. We will make lots more batteries. But the energy density of lithiated chemicals is 5,000% lower than the energy density of hydrocarbons. Forget how, I mean, that's just right. built into the physics of the two materials. So you, could, you, you are at a profound disadvantage to make a, a machine that can carry tons of people at 500 miles an hour when you have a 5,000% difference in the inherent physical chemistry of the primary energy yeah. materials. So if you make a perfect battery and a perfect combustion machine, it's 5,000% difference in their efficacy. You can make an internal combustion engine that's 10 times worse <laughs> and it's still better, the, right? Yeah. It's, still it's still a lot better. better, which is essentially what the yeah, world yeah. is. So I, I look at those kinds of things, broadly speaking, across technology domains. Those those are those limits you can't change. They're the physics of the world we right, live in. Right. It, it, and there's always work. I mean, electric airplanes will work. We make them. They're called drones and small airplanes, but they can't go very fast, very far compared to right. combustion. Yeah. Business. And they won't ever until we invent a battery that has the energy density of hydrocarbons right. for which there is no physics that we know of not you can't you never say impossible we but it doesn't exist yeah, we don't have it right right the other one is scaling how do you how do you make something you can scale um, actually manufacture at scale that works works reliably that people will buy and in the physical world that's a lot harder than it is in the information world making software proliferates you know a mathematics trick you still have to have physical hardware but it's a it's a, it's a lower bar yeah. so we're at where we can't scale some things fast because it's just it's, literally it's inertia hard, right? but if you're if you're in this so if you're thinking this through and you're in the oil and gas business, and, and it's become de class A or even, yeah. you know, uh, considered socially uh, repulsive to mm. you get involved in hydrocarbons. The reality is, I, I'll use the uh, a, a forecast in sense of where we'll be with oil and gas. The IEA, the International Energy Agency, put out its vision forecast for the, quote, transition which would involve accelerating the use of wind, solar, and batteries far faster than is currently being done under the promises of the Paris Accord. Keeping in mind, nobody is meeting their Paris Accord goals. But even if we we increase that far more, in in the year 2040 or 2050, you could pick your timeline, you're going to have... And, and again, in the IEA, see some are on the order of 70, 60 to 70% all the, in that forecast of all net new energy coming from wind and solar, which would be, I, my opinion, won't it's, happen, but just take that, just take that scenario. Yeah. In that, at that point in time in the future, in their scenario, 
the world will still use more hydrocarbons than it did in the year 2000. Yeah. In their scenario. So the question then is, who's going to supply them? Well, we know what Putin and OPEC think. That's clear. They they plan to be in the game. Uh, I, I would take the... The long bet that America will not abandon the game. We will have some political turmoil on the way. We will destroy companies, sadly. Yeah, sure. Long way to rediscovering that we need we to be wish in that we game. Destroyed that, yeah. And I don't think I, I just you call me naive and a Pollyanna in this case. This is the political bet. I I, I think it's we're on a fairly short cycle of uh, insanity on the belief that we can abandon production of oil and gas in America for all of those reasons, both political, economic, geopolitical, workforce, and in the underlying physics of energy. Well, there's there's an emotional component to that belief that seems to be just sort of like oozing into all other aspects of thought and reason and logic, right? Is this emotional thing just- Well, there is. We we know what the elephant in the room is obvious. It's called carbon dioxide and everybody wants to stop burning oil and gas. So the answer would be, I testified recently before the House Agricultural Committee. I've testified before the House and the Senate many times over the years, which is an interesting exercise. Yeah, yeah. 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 Usually, usually, actually, it often it often yeah. is. It's, <laughs> for yeah. for weird I ways, you, I'm not I a mean that sarc- it's just, <laughs> sarcastically. It can be. It can that be. It can be, be fun. fun. Yeah. Uh, the um, the the thing about the uh, the Congress is that, and I and I remind my friends in the industry is that Congress has the power to pass laws that violate the laws of nature, not just the laws of common sure. sense. It is. That's what a democracy is yeah, about. Yeah. So we're doing some silly things right now, but I think we'll redound back to, to normal in, in a year or two yeah. or a few years. And, and it'll, it'll be an expensive experiment, and we'll still build lots of windmills and batteries, and we'll build we'll drill more oil and gas, yeah, too. Yeah. We'll, sure, both will sure. happen. I sense that your dog is needing you right now, so uh, uh, we might yeah. need to he's, <laughs> he's doing a lot the of The dog has a clock. He knows when about an hour has yeah, happened and it says, time. are we, we done? done yet? Are we done yes. here? So I, I just want to make sure I did – at some point, you were gonna, there was going to be a first thing and a second thing, and I don't know if we got to the second thing or did we, did we, did we leave out the second thing, but there, there were sort of well, two things Well, the second thing is sort of the personal. Yeah. Okay. If you're, you know, for engineers, the so oil and gas business is hydrocarbons broadly eighty percent of the world's energy today, and even even the most uh, optimistic or pessimistic, depending on which side of the divide you're on, forecasts see it half of the world's energy in twenty years or thirty sure. years. It's a it's a lot of it's a that's a a monster business. It still remains the world's biggest commodity yep. business. Technology. Uh, is roaring into that sector. Everybody, everybody, as you know, they're not stupid. They want they want to embrace technology to get productivity, more safety, fewer employees because there's fewer people in the business because sure. of retirements, the silver tsunami. You know all the yeah. Reasons. We don't even worry that much about the whole like losing jobs thing because we're trying to. It's hard no. enough to get everybody in all the jobs we have, right? Exactly. Yeah. So we we know everybody knows that the solution to that problem is technology. We also know that that means that wages go up. Yeah, 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 right. And so it's going to be a growth industry with escalating wages and opportunities to put technology to work in ways that have never been done before in history. Frankly, a very exciting time. So those who choose the oil and gas business will, uh, I think, uh, have some very very exciting opportunities in yeah. their careers. Yeah, no, that well, that is that, and we do love to hear stuff like that at OGGN because we try to keep the uh, be a, a positive influence on the industry. I think with with that bit that you just said right there, when you're not testifying before Congress or 
or or uh, <laughs> or pitching your book, uh, we should get you out into the college circuit, right? Because there's a bunch of <laughs> well, I do. I do you know, because, because it'd be great I to do. have some people kind of coming into the industry with that same vision. And uh, well, what I remind I remind students is that robots eat too. All, all, the, all the new technologies require energy. Yeah, and yeah. the thing about technology is it creates wealth, which creates behaviors that require energy. But the new technologies themselves require energy to build. Everything requires yeah, energy yeah, to build. Yeah. And everything requires energy to operate. And the only kind of drones that are going to work for any kind of uh, heavy lift, and by heavy lift, I mean more than 50-pound yeah, packages, yeah. They're going to be hybridized. They're going to use gas or oil, they have to, right. along along with batteries for boost yeah. and electric drive. Right. It's, in fact, I did a calculation, just sort of back of the envelope, which physicists are want yeah. to do. Engineers are much more much more precise. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the net the net demand for oil and gas depends on how we build the engines for the expanded use of uh, cargo and people carrying drones in the future. It's probably an amount equal to the current total demand. So, for so the, so the hundred million barrels uh, a day, we're gonna. It's a big number, and uh, and so I, I, it can't happen. I don't think we're gonna do two hundred million barrels per day. So what will happen is the world will become a hundred and forty million barrel per day world because we'll make everything else efficient enough to allow so it to make happen. It happen. Right, right, right. I got it. All right. That's good. All right, we're gonna. I think we're gonna wrap it up there. But that that's very good. Um, that's a great perspective. It's great to hear somebody. Um, it, certainly, uh, with the like the depth and the breadth and everything to pull all that together. And um, and so uh, so thank you. Thanks for uh, thanks for making again. Thanks for making time. And uh, um, we will. Uh, I, you know, I would love to. Yeah, I'd love to to uh, as your. Uh, as your predictions play out, it would be fun to have you uh, to have you come back <laughs> and, well, and annotate we'll do, annotate we'll annotate the predictions as, as well, we go. Some, some of the we, we could get hyper specific. Some of the predictions are already yeah. in in play. We already see the data uh, in in what some industries are doing. I mean, the sale of robots into warehouses is taking off as we speak, and that's the bellwether, frankly, for the yeah, business that yeah. uh, in the oil and gas business because those those bots. They're gonna they're gonna get better pretty sure. fast because they you know they got they a market got yeah yeah so uh, so clearly I think the next thing that needs to happen is that I need to read the book and then uh, <laughs> and then we'll have more to talk about <laughs> the next time you come back anyway so speaking of the book it is called uh, the cloud revolution. Uh, and uh, by Mark Mills, who uh, has done so many things, but this book being the most recent one. Thanks again for making time, Mark. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And there will be a quiz at the end of you reading the book. <laughs> okay, I'll be prepared. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And there you have it. Mark Mills, ladies and gentlemen. It was great having him on the show. Uh, I got to say... Um, it was, uh, it, it was actually, it was, I had to work pretty hard in this one. Uh, not, not, not because Mark needed any help. Obviously he did not need any help, especially for me. Um, but the, but, but I had to work hard to stay, uh, to do my job because it was, it was, would have been really easy for me to just kick back and, uh, mute myself and just let him talk and listen to what he had to say. But then of course, all of you would have been saying, well, what's Michael doing right now? What is he taking a nap? So, uh, so I had to, I had to really like force, force myself to get in the game. So help, hopefully I held my own and uh, I'm sure that you all enjoyed that. That is going to wrap it up for today. I do want to say uh, thank you again to our sponsor, M-Link. Uh, we love our sponsors and, uh, and we love what they do for the industry and that's why we work with them. So 
So have a look, uh, have a look at what Emlink is doing. Thanks also to the whole OGGN team for all the hard work. We got a lot of good things coming. So follow us on LinkedIn this year. Um, I, can't, I, I can't. There's some stuff I can't tell you about, but it's going to be pretty cool, and it's coming up this year. So follow OGGN, and uh, that's it. Thanks to everybody. Thanks, uh, thanks for listening, and thanks most especially to my audio fixer guy, Mr. Mac Roman, for making us sound fantastic. And remember, anytime you hear somebody talking about oil and gas in the industry and kind of like and, and you suspect that maybe they don't they don't really have an appreciation for for what we do and how and how innovative we are and and all the great uh, things that we have brought into the world as a result of this industry that is when you need to just take them by the hand uh, maybe don't take them by the hand that, that might be a little weird but but educate you know don't argue with people educate them give them that history lesson take them back a hundred years and help them understand how we were tech before tech was cool. Check us out next week for another entertaining and yet useful episode of Oil & Gas Tech Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.